Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161DL210, Crime, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 322, September 9, 1994. In this hour, Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and I will discuss the subject of crime. One of the important aspects of the subject is that we understand what crime is. In every society that has ever existed of which we have any knowledge, Crime has been defined at the beginning of its history religiously. For us, the biblical faith, biblical law, defines crime. Crime is some kind of sin. This is what defines it. It is morally wrong in terms of the basic premises of God's universe. Well, as time passes in societies, the faith that undergirds its doctrine of crime wanes. Then crime becomes what the state says it is. When that happens, then law breaks down, crime increases, and you have a civilization on the verge of a collapse because it has no longer any valid ground for defining criminality. Well, of course, we are in such a phase. The Christian foundation of our culture has disintegrated. Now we have no real ground for calling anything crime except that a federal or state legislature has called something criminal. When you reach that stage, lawlessness proliferates and the culture is on the brink of a breakdown, a collapse. Douglas? Well, something just occurred to me. Uh, it was just about a generation ago, around 1960, that we still had part-time legislature here in California, and I think in most other states. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, they have become full-time professional politicians and full-time professional legislators, and California currently passes over 3,000 laws every year, every legislative session, most of which the legislators don't even know what's in them. Uh, they do this uh, late night, last night of the legislative uh, uh, session, uh, passing of laws that none of them have ever read. And uh, they have codified all human activity. If you were to sit down with a copy of uh, uh, Deering's uh, copy of the Penal Code, you would be amazed at the how finely they have uh, 
ground uh, into dust every possible human activity and nuance uh, thereof and passed laws governing uh, all of those actions. There's virtually nothing that you can do. There's no human activity in any sphere that isn't covered by uh, a law that's on the books here in California. Well, you're talking about what's called statutory law. They pass a statute governing certain activity. And if you uh, don't operate within the parameters of that activity, then you are, technically speaking, <coughs> committing a crime. That's only the beginning of our problem. Our problem is not simply the regulations or the statutes that we are governed by, but the collapse of the judicial system. What's going on in the courts is unbelievable. We have, we have trials that are literally last for years. Years. When English courts were admired up until 1930 or so, a murder trial would last two days. If, the judge, if, if an attorney repeated a question, the judge would rebuke him because he'd say, that's been answered. Don't do that again. And swift justice, although it may sound cruel, but swift justice is necessary. There's nothing just about convicting a man of multiple murders and letting him, feeding him and taking care of him for 12 years in the penitentiary before execution. That's the sort of thing we have. We have, in effect, mountain of law an inability to adjudicate it. We have the police placed in no higher status as witnesses than the accused. And we have also, we've moved into a different area altogether, something new in the West for many centuries, confiscation of property without trial, without conviction, without charge, and also total confiscation of property after conviction. Now, up until recently, every offense had a definite penalty. So many years or so many months or so many weeks or days in jail, some at sudden fines. Now we're running into unlimited punishments in which entire families are wiped out over three million have gone through this process to date. Now these are three million families. That's more than three million people. And even out of 250 million people, this is an awful lot of people, to be reduced to paupers because one of the members of the family, the father, let us say, is convicted of a crime or becomes the target of an accusation which is deemed sufficient to strip him of all his possessions. At the same time, we have the FBI setting up a branch office in Moscow in order to work with the Russian police, and we have other branches of our government making 
concordats or treaties under pressure. Our government is leaning on other governments to eliminate limits on extradition for people evading taxes and all sorts of other offenses committed in the United States or elsewhere. In other words, the American legal authorities now want to operate anywhere in the world, much as Israel considers itself free to operate anywhere in the world where they feel that the rights of an Israeli or a Jew, who is not even an Israeli, is involved. So we have moved into an era where the whole concept of law and sovereignty and individual rights is being transformed. It's almost evaporating before our eyes into dust. Mm -hmm. Well, Noriega was a case in point. Yes, indeed he was. The leaders in Haiti are about to be. Well, Noriega was the head of a foreign state who was convicted of violating American law in another country. Ferdinand Marcos was the president of another country who was kidnapped by American forces. Right. And removed from the country. And conditions are no better in the Philippines now than they were under Marcos. Oh, no. No. If anything worse, there's yes. a Mohammedan assault on Christians in the Philippines. It's not being reported. Yes. The greatest assault on Christians in the country is in the Sudan, where over a million have been murdered. Yes. Not a word. By the same people who bleed for the Serbs, for the, for the uh, Bosnians. Not the Serbs, the Bosnian Muslims. Bosnian Muslims. also happening, although it's not getting much press in Western Australia, and the other major cities in Australia. The Bosnian Serb patriarch of the Serbian Orthodox Church has said, quoting Dostoevsky, Europe is always ready to bleed for the Turks rather than the Christians. There's one other element which is not mentioned very often, but which I think is very important, and that is the revival of torture by governments in this century. Mm -hmm. There are over 60 countries which now regularly practice torture. And in addition to that, there are many, many countries, and even more, who will incarcerate people without a charge and hold them indefinitely, including England, including the United Kingdom. Because Ulster, after all, is technically speaking a part of England. And the rule of law, therefore, has become something else. Here in the United States, we have prosecutors who threaten individuals who are accused with first confiscation of all their property, unless they join the police forces as informers, in which case they are forgiven and turned loose. Now, this is inherently uh, a violation of ethics on both sides. 
So when we talk about crime, we're living in a terrifying century. It's not just street crime. Mm -hmm. It's governmental crime and street crime. And we're being increasingly defined as, as criminals by, you mentioned statutory law, the regulatory law, but you can't escape because it becomes so all-encompassing, it encompasses whole activities by farmers, ranchers, loggers. It starts to incorporate environmental law and so it starts incorporating whole spheres of activity. So we're all under these regulations that define us if we do any activity virtually as criminals. You can't, you can't put a society under that kind of pressure for very long. It's a pressure cooker that's building up and you see people that are falling off the tailgate now who, who can't take it and mm -hmm. uh, come unglued. And uh, it's, uh, it's simply a, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when there's going to be a reaction to it. But, but the longer you wait to react, the deeper we are in a, in a pit, and the longer it's going to take us to get back to real freedom and revive our culture. Well, the, the, the nature of the reaction is not going to be pretty. It's not going to be done at the ballot box. There are two issues of the Wall Street Journal recently, this last few days. One is an editorial regarding the situation in Los Angeles area where the EPA regulations are ready to drop and to be applied. They estimate that it will disemploy anywhere from 500,000 to a million people in which airplanes going into L.A. are supposed to be limited and automobile usage is supposed to be limited and a variety of other strict environmental regulations are supposed to be applied. Now, that's the area upon which the whole economy of the state of California hinges. And it's also the, a, a snake pit of ethnic difficulty. I believe that the air quality in Los Angeles is no worse and often better than in Washington, D.C. and in New York City. I have flown enough to recognize that while there is a great deal of screaming about Los Angeles, it can be much worse in some areas of the East. I have never, never seen air quality as bad as in Washington, D.C., you can smell the bad air. It's overwhelming. Now, the hostility to Los Angeles is because it became the center of the American economy rather than New York City in the Northeast. So these laws that the EPA is pushing on Southern California are ways of destroying the economy there. The economic basis of the world or center of the world is now the Pacific Basin. And Los Angeles has been very important to the whole of the Pacific Basin. We are destroying it, and we're destroying it for one reason. 
It has no right to outcompete New York City and the Northeast of the United States. Well, they've always been jealous of California. California is the sixth largest economy in the world, and the eastern part of the United States has always hated California. Yes. And you feel it immediately when you go to the East Coast. It was, as, as large cities go for a long time, it was one of the more affluent and more suburban oriented. And it's a great suburb. It was know. easy yeah. to make Los Angeles feel guilty about something as nebulous as, as air quality. I don't think if they had taken the same pressure and put it on New York, the people of New York would have felt embarrassed about their air quality or Detroit or Chicago. Well, New York stinks, literally. Mm. Well, the air smells. I've come to the conclusion that all of these things are Trojan horses. The, the spotted owl is a Trojan horse. The uh, air pollution thing is a Trojan horse. The uh, global warming has now become a joke. It's an obvious Trojan horse. The game here is to get control over every sphere of human activity. And all of these ruses that they come up with uh, to, to gain uh, public sympathy, such as for the owl. Nobody wants to go out and kill owls. Nobody's against owls. Uh, in order to get a constituency that will go along with these rules, uh, they have to find some object. It could be a teddy bear. It could be a koala bear. It could be anything. And it's, this is strictly a Trojan horse uh, tactic, strategy that's being followed. Well, these are uh, all the EPA laws come under the category, violating them comes under the category of crime. Oh, if, if you modify your carburetor, you're a criminal. Well, uh, if you sell a car to me without having a smog inspection and a brake and tire and carburetor and everything else inspected and approved today, you've committed a crime and so have I in buying the car from you in the state of California. It has to be done over, it has to be inspected as carefully as selling a house. Transferring and, a gun. and meanwhile, while they're defining us increasingly as criminals and more and more activity as, as criminals, the Bill of Rights is constantly eroded. There's not one of the Bill of Rights that is still completely intact. No. Except part of the first word relates to the press. For, the, the, first for the time being. Yes. Now, the behavior of the press indicates that the press is afraid of the government also yes. because Mr. Clinton is not like Mr. Uh, Mr. Reagan and not like Mr. Nixon. Mr. Nixon knew he had enemies in the press, but the Kennedy brothers were going to move against their enemies in the press. Yes. He was assassinated before he could complete his plan. But this administration has behind it a very dark past in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And the press has two things. First, they'd love to get a job in the government. And second, they're afraid of the government. So the two, the two feelings or positions prevent them from writing about Clinton candidly the way the British press is delightfully writing about him. They're getting even with us for all our dumping on their royal family, by dumping on our royal family. 
Well, hardly a royal family. Well, the equivalent, it's an electoral royalty, somebody said years ago. And well, it has some of that aspects. There are Calicacs. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think the whole issue is a very, very broad one. Crime is now no longer something that is defined in terms of the Ten Commandments and uh, very easily understandable. It is as broad as the earth. Anything the state by law or by regulation chooses to call crime becomes a crime so that we've lost all sense of reality it produces a fearfulness in a great many people businessmen know they can be and often are arbitrarily put out of business or fined for some ostensible violation which is not a real thing but it's a shakedown well, what, how do you know people uh, I guess uh, are so confused now about the law you've got a situation where it's it's now possible by, uh, legal for a uh, woman to ride the subway in New York topless and yet they've outlawed uh, topless bathing on uh, a beach in California. Well, they can only arrest them on the subway if someone complains. Oh? <laughs> well, uh, on what grounds would they complain? Uh, ugliness? Uh, a disturbance. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting, yeah. wouldn't it? You know, uh, what's a crime? A crime is what they say is a crime. Yeah. Yes. That's a key issue. Throughout Christian history, men have known what good and evil are, what crime is in terms of the Bible. Medieval man, Reformation man knew this. In this country, we knew it until Ralph Waldo Emerson came along and began to redefine all things. And his disciples... Friedrich Nietzsche denied the validity of good and evil. That's right. He said we must live beyond good and evil. The superior person is beyond good and evil. And we are now witnessing the lifestyles of superior people yes. who are not being held accountable as the rest of us are. Yes. They don't quite what up as gods. we have created is a generation that does not know what good and evil are. They don't know, for instance, that you cannot cheat on an examination or lie in order to hold a job or lie in court. I understand now that perjury is habitual and the witness stand. And that neither the courts nor the, pro the judge nor the prosecutor is surprised or does anything about it. Mm -hmm. They cheat in law schools. Yes. Yes, Dewey tells me, and he's a lawyer, and a good one, that he will not accept the word of another lawyer. He wants it in writing. Huh. 
Well, well the lawyer should become judge. But the crime is not defined by the statutes, it's defined by the judge. And that's why, but like the judge who decided, you know, when, you know, being topless on the subway was, was it could be considered a crime and when it couldn't, it was one judge's opinion. I suspect that he rides the subway to work. <laughs> what happens when they go out of the subway? I don't know. They put on a sweater. It's amusing, though, the uh, the topless thing at the uh, bathing at the beach. They decided to defer enforcement until October. Well, by that time, it's still cold. <laughs> <laughs> I was browsing in a used bookstore. I had a book. It was a little more than they wanted to spend for it. It was about odd laws. And the, the memorable one I remember just from browsing at it, it was, it was a state in the northern, one of the northern plains state. It was a law still on the books that it was against the law to dance the hoochie-coochie with a circus worker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I picked up uh, yesterday and I'm reading uh, a book about one of the celebrities in the world of the beautiful people in New York. A person who, a woman, who grew up in affluence in a mansion. But the fact that it was in a very choice area did not mean there was any absence of crime because there was an absence of morality. And she was raped at the age of six by a neighborhood boy. Now, the interesting thing to me was that there appears to be no indication whatsoever that at any point this very attractive young woman ever got any morality. And the result is her whole life, a brief one because she died of AIDS, was ever given to anything but trifles and to complaining about trifles. And evil for her was things that... uh, at best, we could call annoyances. Mm. Now, I find that to be a kind of parable of our time. It's as though for a sizable segment of our population, somebody has just taken morality out of the picture because neither in their homes, nor their schools, nor their uh, general associations is there any hint of morality. Or of its value. Yes. And instead, their whole life focuses on trivia. And the momental issues in their life (coughs) are trivia. You look at uh, such a person and realize she was more prominent than hundreds of thousands like her, and you realize why we are in trouble as a country. 
why the world is drifting into a suicidal status. Well, Christianity is a direct threat to the power of the government to say what the law is. Uh, it's against the law to post the Ten Commandments in a schoolroom yes. so that children at least get some basic rules to live by. Uh, that constitutes just the existence of those Ten Commandments as a threat to the power of the state. I was at a couple of uh, trials in the 70s. I think, yes, mid or late 70s, early 80s, involving the posting of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and it was interesting, the uh, state attorney who was defending the Ten Commandments had earlier been the state attorney trying to shut down the uh, Christian schools of that particular state. Now, I was very interested in that here was a man whose background was humanism, who was so intense about persecuting, which it was, the Christian schools, was fighting so intensely and doing so much research on the defense of the Ten Commandments. And I said, why is it when we were having uh, lunch together that you are so intensely involved in the defense of the Ten Commandments? And he looked at me in surprise. He said, why, I hate to lose. Just that simple. It's yes. It's a game. It was a game. Yes. With no other purpose or point. No other purpose or point. Now the... This was in the Bible Belt, by the way. The ex-Bible Belt. Yes. One of the things that we lack and we used to have in the theater and in literature on crime was the misery involved in committing crimes. The misery of the life of a criminal and it's now presented as something else. Yes. Yes, very good point. The 1930s saw the glorification of gangsters, Otto, so that there is abundant verification for the point you made. Uh, James Cagney became famous for it. I recall in one... Uh, film set in New York, what was it, 37th Street or 47th Street, something like that was the name of the film. 42nd, perhaps. <laughs> At any rate, there was this one theme song, speaking of the women of easy virtue and the gangsters, they're side by side, they're glorified, 42nd Street. Yes, 42nd Street. That yes, was that was the song. Yeah. <clears throat> they were glorified in the yes, film. Yes, they were. And uh, they were heroes. Yes. Well, now the thing has gone sideways into something else. The films have gone into sadism. Yes. 
I can't stand it when I turn on TV to see another film of a man brutalizing a woman. And it happens time and time and time again. They show this. Now, what is not mentioned is that there is a war against women in reality, which this feeds. That's a very important point. What the writers, feminists, male and female, are telling us is that until recently in Christian America, women were brutalized. They've actually claimed that, uh, and it's fictitious, that a woman could be beaten with a stick of such a wit. Nonsense. It is a myth. Women were not beaten. It was against the law, and it was against custom, customary law. If a man were known as a wife beater, other men in the community, community took him out quietly, gave him a talking to and a beating in some form or another. But now there's a great deal of violence. Not only so, we are told that violence against women is a masculine fact. Well, a study not too long ago, which has not been uh, publicized, indicated that in lesbian relationships, the dominant lesbian is very, very prone to beating up on the other woman. Many of the battered women shelters can tell you that. Yes, but we're not told that in uh, the literature of our time. Well, it is anti-male. It's interesting that with all the psychiatrists and psychologists we have, that the producers of these sadistic spectacles are never analyzed are never held up for examination. In this latest Natural Born Killers catastrophe that Oliver Stone has put out, it's described as a satire. And previously the phrase used to be black humor, to forgive what is revolting, open sadism and hatred of people. And this is very interesting because the film industry of Germany specialized in sadism. And accustomed accustomed the Germans to the idea that torture and violence is an ordinary part of life. Yes. We are given uh, accounts of the Middle Ages as a time of torture when torture had been abolished because of Christian standards, only to revive with the Renaissance. That's right. It was the professors who brought back Roman law, which torture was customary in the latter centuries of the empire. Mm -hmm. Now, up until then, you know, a Roman citizen was safe from torture. So they tortured slaves and they tortured foreigners. But in the end, they tortured everybody. Mm -hmm. And these movies and these 
arguments that men are naturally this way and so forth is a prelude to the use of torture in the United States by the legal authorities. Yes. Just as the Israeli authorities use torture over the Palestinians and other countries do the same. We are seeing the revival of torture the world over. The world is true. As Christianity recedes in one country after another, the protection once given to the law-abiding citizen is gone. The, the law really is applied against the law-abiding. Yes. I think the criminal in court has more rights yes. than the individual who is accused by a jealous neighbor of having marijuana in his home. And look at what this opens up. What is to stop the police from dropping a marijuana cigarette inside your house? Yes. In former years, we would be horrified at the very thought that the police could play such a role, but not today. Well, the situation is not going to alter until we get back a relevant Christian faith so that once again people know what good and evil are. Until then, the state will define it. You, you either have God defining good and evil or you have the state doing it. There's no well, other alternative. Well, the Christians are going to have to do something else. They're going to have to start telling the truth about circumstances and situations and what they see and what they know. Because if a whole country joins in the lie of covering up for what is going on, then there is no way that it's ever going to be repaired. And it is a, it is a crime for a Christian not to be honest. Yes. And I believe it is a sin for churches to invite politicians to address them when they know these are not believers and they are immoral men. Well, what can you say about a Christian who gets up and speaks to a church, a Christian church, and then puts on a mezuzah or whatever they call it and speaks then to a rabbinical group? What uh, What is this? Yes. We are seeing a contempt shown. For both. For both. Yes. You know, a lot of Christians can't can't tell it because they don't know what a lot of churchmen don't know because they don't know what Christianity even teaches they don't know the Bible they've gotten mush from the pulpit so long Clinton recently appeared in a church group I forget what he was promoting but a man afterwards said I didn't realize he was a man of God <laughs> <laughs> well uh, I recall when Eisenhower was informed that he had been nominated for the presidency by the Republican convention. He was playing golf at the time, and he swore and he said he would now have to start going to church. Did he really? Yes. 
Well, you know, going back to the business of appearing before different groups, the orthodox rabbinical groups insist that the politician who comes and speaks to them shows them the respect mm-hmm. of putting on the skull cap. Mm-hmm. They consider that if he comes in any other way, they don't want to hear him. Mm-hmm. But the Christians don't draw any line and have forgotten that they have the right to have their standards respected by others mm-hmm. equally. It's a very important point. So when we talk about restoring the faith, we have to restore, I would say, pride in the faith and the pride of the faith. Well, it's it's an interesting contrast that the military turned their back on Clinton at some of the military functions, but church groups that ask Mr. Clinton to speak don't turn their back on him. Well, I sometimes think that the worst thing that ever happened to the clergy in the United States was the tax exemption, because they're afraid of it. They're afraid of the government. No, tax exemption is totally biblical, and it was the first battle between Rome and the church. But it shouldn't be used as an instrument to gag the clergy. Well, it hasn't been so used yet. It's cowards who have been afraid to speak and have used that as an excuse. Well, that's an interesting distinction. Well, a major church recently uh, rejected an appeal by some of the clergy that they speak out against... Uh, the homosexual approval mm. of, uh, by Clinton, the mm-hmm. approval of homosexuals. And there were those who said, no, they might remove our tax exemption. Now, that was new. Heretofore, no church has ever hesitated to be open in its condemnation. But first you have the acceptance of it by many of the churches and then the cowardice of the others. And then the excuse that their tax exemption is being threatened. Yes, it's basically an excuse. They don't want to be relevant. Every time anybody speaks out, though, the press is just like a pack of dogs. They're on them immediately, and you almost think that they've been sent there by somebody in the government. Well, dogs don't have to be sent. (laughs) They run by instinct, and they are dogs. Everyone else has been pushed out of the business. A real reporter who couldn't survive. And we look at the way Buchanan was abused and is abused. What has he ever said that's offensive? He spoke of a cultural war, and anyone who doesn't know that there is a cultural war in this country must be blind and deaf and dumb. There's a multicultural war. It isn't just one side and two sides. It's a whole bunch of sides. And I'm reminded of the collapse of the Russian government 
according to that diary kept by Gote, he said, how could a country so large and so rich collapse so quickly? And then he said, well, on the other hand, we've been at war with each other for the last 75 years, so I guess the, the collapse was reasonable. Before the collapse, you had a series of things. First, you had the students who in the second half of the 1800s were like our hippies. In fact, their method of dress, their method of uh, demonstrating was the same. Then you had the novelists who questioned every kind of uh, moral restriction. They ridiculed anyone who drew the line on uh, certain types of sexual activity. Prior to World War I, these writers dominated the culture. There was one other matter, and that was the rise of crime. Yes. Prior to World War I, they had street gangs which committed mm-hmm. their depredations in broad daylight. There were assassinations, widespread assassinations of the bureaucracy. Crime was rampant. There were more murders proportionately than we have now, and we have 23,000 a year. So every one of these symptoms of decay in Russia exist among us. And I, yeah. think, I think the widespread crime is very sinister. Mm-hmm. I, I read in, uh, I believe it was Insight magazine that had an article on the states, emerging states' rights. They talked about the inevitability of the spontaneous collapse of central power and they compared it to what happened in the Soviet Union. You're talking about from a crime and a social perspective. They said sooner or later people are going to get up fed up with the federal government. Was that in Harper's? I believe it was in Insight. Oh, Insight. Well, it was similar. There was a similar article a few months ago in Harper's, if you remember. Very frightening about really the growth of anarchy. Now, the inner, the, in, the gangs of the inner city, it's interesting. Everyone knows they live on crime, they live on drugs, and they commit murders and so forth. They're not highlighting the murders in, California, in, in L.A. right now among the, the black and the, and the Hispanic crime, gangsters, uh, gangs. But I often wondered since why the BATF didn't go after the unregistered weapons of the gangs in the inner cities and just went after a Christian group sitting out in the middle of the desert of Texas. And they went with tanks and guns. So you know they weren't just simply sending a message. You can get hurt in the inner city. Yes. Those people don't fool around. Well, then you're talking about anarchic areas. They're not mentioned. afraid. Mm-hmm. The people in the inner city, they're not afraid. You mentioned Russia before <clears throat> the war. It is interesting that uh, before World War One, the literature went in for uh, sexual freedom. 
and was uh, militantly anti-Christian. One writer, more or less uh, an adherent of Russian Orthodoxy, was uh, Marischkovsky. Now in the 30s, his trilogy on Christ versus Antichrist was uh, in print and the modern library had reprinted it and was using it. It was an interesting and an important uh, set, but uh, uh, of course I didn't agree with it theologically, but it was good reading, especially the second and third volumes. Now, when I took a course in the Russian literature of from 1900 to about 1930, uh, the man who taught it was a Marxist. He had been a, a member of the whole group that was around uh, Lenin and Trotsky. Be an interesting fellow. Yes. Now, he ridiculed, of course, Marischkovsky's trilogy, and he preferred some of the uh, books like Artsibashev, Sanin, which was sexual uh, liberation. He preferred the writings of the Marxist writers in Russia after the revolution. But he still recognized, although he ridiculed Marischkovsky, his importance. Now you do not hear the name mentioned anymore. He's been no. dropped by the modern library. It's as though he never existed. Well, the New York Times does not carry Christian books in its bestseller lists. Mm-hmm. It carries anti-Christian books mm-hmm. and it carries religious books of other religious writers, but mm-hmm. not of Christian writers. Uh, Marischkovsky wrote a variety of things. One of his interesting writings was... Uh, vaguely related to what we're talking about. It was titled The Republic of the Southern Cross. And it was a vision of the future, the organization of uh, society by the state geared to production, and uh, the ideal state was formed under the ice, underground in Antarctica everything geared to total efficiency. And then the whole thing, beyond good and evil, geared to the anthill and the beehive, totally utilitarian, collapses. Suddenly men start destroying the machines. And the whole of the Republic of the Southern Cross goes blank There are no uh, signals coming from Antarctica. It was uh, 
supposed to be a world of uh, efficiency, no crime, everything. But man could not be put into that mold. Well, no. I think it's interesting you're talking about his suppression. Mm-hmm. That after Solzhenitsyn redid 1914, it vanished from the market. Hmm. And it was given some scathing reviews. And uh, it has now virtually disappeared. As he is going to disappear from the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. And has, practically, since he went back to Russia. All of a sudden, we're not getting any further reports of what's happening in Russia culturally or socially. Mm-hmm. Only on the economics Except that Boris Yeltsin drinks too much. Well, that sort of thing, yes. Now, what's happening? <clears throat> what's happening in literature? What has happened in American literature in terms of creating a fantasy society instead of a real society comes under the heading, I think, of intellectual crime. Yes, and we're beset with intellectual crimes. Yes, we are. And these are crimes. Mm-hmm. Dishonesty is a crime. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be restricted in our thoughts to the tangible. Plagiarism, for instance, is rampant. Yes. Well, <laughs> ever since uh, Martin Luther King's plagiarism was exposed... And accepted. And ex- but accepted in spite of the exposure, plagiarism generally has not gotten a bad press. Well, they actually said to excuse Martin Luther King was that it was a black practice. Yes, which is an insult to all blacks. Of course it is. What do you suppose somebody like Walter Williams or Thomas Sowell had to say about that or how he feels about that? Mm-hmm. Well, our time is not too far from closing. Would you each like to make a concluding statement? Take your time, but summarize your reactions to the subject. Well, there's uh, uh, some glimmer of hope here, at least in California. They passed some laws here recently, uh, more stringent laws on... uh, uh, rapists and arsonists and it will be interesting to see if the courts will apply them uh, we have so many liberal judges that uh, they tend to find any avenue they can around uh, stiffer laws and uh, the next uh, challenge may be to make some changes in the ju- judiciary to uh, try to get these laws implemented the problem is that every time they pass these laws, it's a double-edged sword because it, uh, uh, the uh, prosecutors find some way to uh, apply them uh, more stringently to people who are uh, innocently caught in the web rather than those people who are career criminals. And uh, particularly if they can apply them against uh, Christians The law is being used as a tool of discrimination. And uh, 
it's uh, it bears watching. I tend to agree with that. Uh, the income tax made it legal. It, it it was considered unconstitutional by the court, Supreme Court, when it was attempted in the 1890s. The only way they could put it across was as a constitutional amendment. And it unequally treats people. It, it taxes some people more than others. Ever since then, our law has been unequally applied. And I think this is probably at the core of what's wrong with our judicial system. Something that was uh, interesting to me, um, I know somebody who was on a jury a few years back. It had to do with drunk driving. A man refused to take a sobriety test. He was pulled over by the highway patrol. Uh, uh, he did not pass the sobriety test. He refused to take the blood alcohol test. Therefore, his license was suspended, and this was so he was brought before the jury. The gist of what the uh, two or three of the jurors held out for not guilty, the reaction was, and I've heard this elsewhere, what if it was me that was stopped? What if I had been stopped after I had a couple drinks? Who's to say a couple drinks and blood alcohol level makes really makes you drunk? And as long as people have this idea that they don't believe something is right or wrong and that they should be held accountable and everyone should be accountable for their actions, if there's no morality behind their view of law, they're never going to have any agreement on what should be done about crime. Because you can't agree on what should be done about crime unless people and judges have a concept of morality. Until our society has some concept of morality restored, we're not going to have a proper concept of crime and punishment restored. And that applies to the people and juries just as well as it does to uh, policemen and judges. A few years ago, here in California, in Fresno, a very fine black judge was bitterly attacked in the media because his Christian faith came out in the courtroom. This has happened elsewhere in the country. And yet, we have had a large number of judges appointed to the federal bench from coast to coast who are homosexual, also here in California on the state level, and elsewhere also on the state level. But nothing done about that, and if anyone were to raise a question about it, there would be a hue and cry about intolerance but there is no toleration for Christianity on the bench. In fact, there was a reversal by the Supreme Court, I believe, of one uh, judgment in a border state, as I recall it, where in asking for the death penalty, the prosecuting attorney mentioned that the Bible also approves of it. On that ground, the judgment was overturned. That's right. So we are on a crisis. We have established evil and we have moved against the freedom 
of Christians and of Christianity. Judges no longer say when they pass sentence of death and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Yes. Well, our time is up. Our country needs your prayers. But God is going to cleanse house. Of that we can be sure. Thank you all for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.